From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we're very glad that you're with us today for Open Line Thursday here on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Uh, Jack Williams away. He may be joining us a little bit later on in the hour, but uh, to get things started here, I'm Tom Price along with our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you, Father? I'm just peachy, thank you. How about yourself? Doing very well. And uh, let me give those phone numbers out. I think this will be a very, very interesting program today. That number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. Or you could uh, shoot us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian or Father Milady, something that would make sure that the, the right question goes to the right host. So this week, a lot of people have been talking about uh, this week marking the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council back in 1962. So, Father, uh, what you're going to be talking about today to kick us off here, was Vatican II necessary? I'm very eager to hear what you have to say. Well, I wrote an article for the Register on this that you can find online. They printed it, I believe, on the line two days ago. And many people have written about this. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal by George Weigel about it. It's an important topic. I have no deep insights into this, except I did live through it all, Uh and I've been dealing with it all ever since I was ordained (laughs) and taught. Mm. And the important thing about Vatican II is to look at it from the perspective of the 60s, when it was called, and before. Today, of course, with the uh, value of hindsight, we see that it caused a lot of problems in the church that perhaps still aren't resolved. But when it was originally called in the early 60s, it was welcomed with joy by most of the church. Especially, you know, we had a church that had done the last, uh, the council of 1870, where they only got to discuss two topics and they wanted to discuss 50. But all this was reflecting the fact that we hadn't really had a council that was directly involved in the expression of the faith since Trent. And yet, there were all kinds of cultures that had joined the church since Trent. Mm -hmm. So the missionary activity of the European powers had been accompanied by Catholicism. And this led to all kinds of problems and issues. And the church wanted to resolve those, perhaps with a more general discussion. So first of all, you have to go back to 1870 which was the first Vatican Council and was basically called for two reasons. First of all, to answer the problems of Freemasonry and the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And secondly, to declare final independence of the church 
from the Union of Throne and Altar and the state to show that we were a very much a separate society and not just sort of the sacristy of a, sa a state. Mm -hmm. And you remember the first council was actually called by the emperor, Constantine. Well, the relationship between the church and the state from Protestantism on, and even in the Middle Ages, remember they killed archbishops on altars in the Middle yes, Ages, yes. had has become something of a real issue. So with the infallibility, which they defined, they wanted to basically say that the church is a supernatural society. It's primarily a spiritual society. Now, it wasn't that people didn't think that, but it had never been formally taught in uh, a, uh, a church teaching. And when the council ended, Cardinal Wojtyla, you know, John Paul II went back to Poland, and he had a discussion group, mm -hmm. uh, which eventually was turned into a book uh, called Sources of Renewal. And he basically said that once God was defined and then the sacraments and all that, the next step was to for the church to have a kind of self-reflection on what the church was as the implementation of all those other mysteries. So he basically said the primary question the council wanted to answer was he formulated in Latin, Ecclesia quidigsta de te ipsa, church, what do you have to say about yourself? And that these were, this topic was basically treated in the two Belmanic constitutions, which in Cardinal Ratzinger's opinion, Benedict's, mm -hmm. were the most important documents and the interpretive documents, which would be divine revelation and um, the church. You will notice the liturgy is not in those foundational documents. Mm. And whatever you decide in the first two things, then you applied that to all the rest of the problems. And they included things like ecumenism, the liturgy, um, uh, religious life, uh, uh, missionary activity, freedom of church from the state, all those other things. Mm -hmm. Now, when John the Twenty Third called the whole thing, he was hoping that a church that had perhaps, after Vatican I, become too bureaucratic and too legalistic and too centralized would realize that it was not just a thoroughly nasty corporation. <laughs> <laughs> that in fact it was a spiritual society, even though we all know it has a human face and sometimes the human face isn't perfect. And so his intention was to make this spiritual aspect in everything more accessible and more loved. And then once he uh, formulated that intention, then uh, the rest of the documents sort of follow in, in quick succession. Now, when he died in the middle of the council mm -hmm. and Paul VI took over, he had to help with another direction. And unfortunately, there were people at Vatican II, theologians, who didn't really go along with this program. They wanted to say something else. And in fact, Pius XII had prepared for a council in the, the famous Return to the Sources. Well, that church had already begun that with, for example, the Leonine Commission with the works of St. Thomas, but also with scripture. Pius XII, remember, was the person 
who allowed new forms of interpretation of scripture to enter, which were more uh, were perhaps a little scientific, and also with the idea of updating, he himself realized that there were a lot of things, um, perhaps much of the ceremonial, the monarchical ceremonial, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, that at least needed to be re-examined. But after the initial stages of that re-examining, when John XXIII died, it took over another direction. The theologians did it, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, who became media stars practically. For the first time, the church was basking in the fact that the media loved us. Yeah. <laughs> and they loved the interviews and giving interviews for the uh, theologians and that kind of thing. To such an extent that when Archbishop Bogucan, for example, returned to San Francisco at the end of the council with the final documents approved, the theologians, a few of the liberal ones, had preceded him back here by six months, and nobody wanted to read the documents. So as a result, Vatican II is one of those councils where everybody talks about it, but nobody's read the documents. Mm, yeah, yeah. And also... Um, the this this fact has caused the, the kind of reference to Vatican II as kind of justifying a whole new church, which is not what any of the people intended who called it. Uh -huh. And certainly when most of the bishops, I'm not saying some of them didn't perhaps intend it. Uh -huh. All this is reflected in, uh, for example, the famous interview given by Cardinal Ratzinger before he became Pope Benedict at the um, 20th anniversary of the close of Vatican II in 1986, where he says this, What is certain is that the Council did not take the turn that John XXIII had expected. It must also be admitted that in respect to the whole Church, the prayer of Pope John and the Council signify a new leap for the Church to renewed life and unity has not, at least as yet, been granted. Mm. And uh, he references the fact, as does later one of the more famous theologians, Father de Lubac, the Jesuit, already during its sessions and then increasingly in the subsequent period, was opposed to the self-styled spirit of the council where everything new had to be tried. Mm, wow. So what I would say is, if people want to know my opinion of it, it's a hope that has not yet been totally realized. I do believe it had to happen at the time it did. Well, we'll have to leave it there, and uh, we recommend everybody check out the article uh, in ncregister.com. We'll be right back. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. A great new book for you from EWTN Publishing, uh, Catechism of the Spiritual Life, A Journey into the Sacred Mysteries by Cardinal Robert Seurat. Um, Cardinal Seurat invites you to journey with him through the Gospels and discover the origin and meaning of each of the sacraments and how each one is essential to helping you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus, foster your contemplative life, and flourish in communion with the Holy Trinity. 
You'll find out how you'll find out rather how a loss of faith in the real presence causes a decline in Christian communities, the dangers of revisionist doctrines on morality based on sociology and science, and much, much more. Catechism of the Spiritual Life, A Journey into the Sacred Mysteries by Robert Cardinal Seurat, available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Still a couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Andrew in Midland, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Andrew, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Well, hey, Father. Hi. So, uh, I was reading in St. Matthew's Gospel last night uh, about John the Baptist, and I had, like, two questions. First of all, you know, is the baptism of John the Baptist, like, the valid Christian baptism that we had after Jesus? And it also says in St. Matthew's Gospel that people were confessing their sins. So, would... Would St. John the Baptist have had the power to hear confession? All right, uh, let me answer the second one first. The power to hear confessions is converting the apostles in the light of Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. As a result, the confession regarding John the Baptist is much like our confession at the beginning of Mass, where we desire uh, repentance. And that's the same true of his baptism. The baptism of John did not confer grace. The apostles were very clear about that. In fact, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, I can't remember which one of the apostles it was. It was either Peter or Paul, I believe. It could have been Philip, who had to explain to people who'd experienced the baptism of John that it was not the baptism of Christ and they needed to be baptized with the baptism of Christ. The baptism of John, in other words, did not work ex opere operato. Like many of the sacraments, so-called of the Old Testament, it worked ex opere operantis. In other words, it was subjective of preparation for the person who desired conversion, but in itself as a rite, when the water touched you, it did not confer grace, but it was a testimony to your desire to be healed. And of course, because it occurred immediately on the eve of the coming of Christ, John is the precursor, the last and greatest of the, of the prophets. The, therefore, it was very much uh, uh, a preparation for once Jesus dies on the cross for his own baptism, which does confer grace. So in answer to both questions, Neither one of them is a sacrament of the New Testament. Neither one of them confers grace as operato. But they are connected with preparing the recipient, in other words, when the work performed. They are preparations to help the recipient prepare himself for conformity to Christ, which will occur in the baptism by water of, uh, of Jesus. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We have an email here from Jesse who wants to know, how does the church defend the perpetual virginity of Mary? 
Well, first of all, I don't like theology by defense. <laughs> it's called apologetics, and I think it has its place. But I like theology that has to do with positive explanations for things, which make sense and are logical. In Scripture, of course, we have no statement whatsoever that Mary and Joseph had further children than Christ. Also, Mary's virginity is definitively proclaimed when Joseph discovers that she's with child, but this is of the Holy Spirit. The angel tells him it's of the Holy Spirit. So there's no statement whatsoever in Scripture that would lead a person to believe, and the Christian tradition does not teach this either, that Mary and Joseph ever had relations. In fact, if we were looking at tradition, it's the very opposite. Uh, and there's a tradition that Mary and Joseph both took vows of virginity. Now, they had a valid marriage because they did this not to preclude children, but under the idea that they were part of this divine plan for the coming of the Messiah, and that should God ever wish to reveal to them that they should consummate their marriage, then they were willing to do so. But he never did. So the perpetual virginity of Mary has to do with the idea that she gave birth to the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, her birth is very special. It's very miraculous. And also, since Jesus is, after all, God, and uh, why, would she, why would she want other children? She does have other children. We're all her other children but they're spiritually true because of our connection to Christ, who, who is the, the perfect son. I mean, who, who want more than that? And also because that was part of what the divine plan announced to her. So she was virgin before, during, and after the conception of our Lord because it demonstrates her purity of heart, her singularity of purpose and faith, and also um, is an image to us uh, of someone who finds everything in him. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Speaking of uh, we being the other children of Mary, Michael in Oklahoma says, we're always told that when Jesus told St. John, behold your mother, that John represents the whole church. I've never heard that explained, so why is that? And let's see that. Uh, it, it happened. <laughs> I mean, uh, if that refers to why John represents the whole church, it's because he's an apostle. And when Jesus is going to die and go to heaven, he doesn't want to leave his mom without a family. And since she's spiritually the mother of the living, like Eve was, uh, it, it relates to. Uh, a famous statement in literature, the novelist Graham Greene in the book Power and the Glory, which is about a fallen priest in the Mexican persecution, says, no, only a man with no children of his own can understand what it means to be the father of all. Well, Mary, who brought forth the Messiah from her womb, after all, he shared in her flesh. For everyone who believes in the Messiah... She's the spiritual mother. So that's the origin of all that. It all has to do with the 
the nature of the body, but now the Christ's body is dead and it's gone to heaven, and was raised from the dead and gone to heaven. And the fact that the body comes from the mother, the mother has a special relationship with it. When Christ is dying on the cross, and Mary's um, uniting herself with his will, but still obviously very sad by the whole thing, to help her in her sadness, the Lord tells her, well, I'm not your only child now. Now, because of the relationship of people believing in me, all those who believe in me will also be your children. And because John didn't run away, he's one of the chosen ones, the beloved disciple. When all the other disciples ran away, it, John symbolically is given to her and her to John as an expression of that relationship. Uh, next up is Roger in the great state of North Dakota, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Roger, you're on with Father Brian. Hello. Hello. Uh, on a marijuana, there's a, a movement underway to legalize it all over the country, and I'm fighting against that. And I want to bring sobriety into the, uh, the debate. Uh I'd like some guidance on uh, uh, how sobriety comes across in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In fact, I'm referring it to it as the eleventh commandment. You know, thou shalt not be stoned. Yeah. Well, first of all, you don't use the scriptures to see the problem of marijuana. Um, not only is it a doorway to other more dangerous drugs, as you know, in our country, it's basically finally given rise to fentanyl, which is, I, I don't know, I never witnessed someone on fentanyl, but it's supposed to be just absolutely terrible. And people just die or commit suicide that have it. It's a mind-altering thing. Now, a lot of people back in the 70s used to try to say it was the same as alcohol, which is true if you drink enough alcohol. But if, you know, you drink a little wine or something like that, that's not the same thing, even uh, because the mind-altering character, even we measure bloodstream when we regard to um, alcohol to see if the mind-altering character is enough to produce irrationality. But marijuana is quite dangerous, and many people don't realize it. We kept trying to convince the students in Los Angeles when we taught high school in the 70s that it was bad for them. We did succeed in a few cases, but you know, the kids told me that uh, 80% had tried it and 30% were already users. And uh, it's very sad because, uh, like our brother Ricardo told them that his cousin had had a bad trip at the age of 18 and his mind was destroyed for the rest of his life. And it seems that that's not all that unusual. So uh, it's, it's stoning, being stoned is a bad thing. With alcohol, you have to drink quite a lot of alcohol to be stoned. But with marijuana, as you know, a few puffs is enough. So it, it's really very dangerous and very inhuman, and it produces an irrationality that may, not, may be mild in, its, in the stage that comes with marijuana for the most part, but it always is a doorway to craving for deeper experiences. 
God bless you, Roger. We appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines and plenty of time for your phone calls. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Two of our EWTN radio family members are celebrating their seventh anniversaries this week. A Blaze Radio FM 98.1 in Duluth, Georgia, and Divine Mercy Radio Catholic 540 AM in Raleigh, North Carolina. Congratulations to A Blaze Radio and Divine Mercy Radio, bringing their listeners seven great years of EWTN radio. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Father Brian, Luz called in, and she wanted to know, if a plant is dying at a garden shop and someone cuts off part of the plant to grow it at home without paying for it, is it a sin? No. (laughs) (laughs) If 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 you stole the whole plant, yeah, it would probably be a venial sin. But to just take a shaving off of it, no. And you don't need to add the condition it's dying or not. It doesn't matter. It's a small, small thing. And it, it's, you, can't, you can't own a plant like that. You can own it to sell it, but not a little shaving of a leaf or something. No. We've still got a couple of open lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Bill is in Trenton, Missouri. He is a first-time caller watching us on YouTube today. Bill, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Father Milady, it's Father Bill. Hi. An old student of yours. Oh, okay. Uh, and I have a question uh, from both sides of the screen. So if a penitent comes and explains that he received an invalid absolution, uh, does he need to reaccuse himself? Oh, uh, well, for the sake of receiving absolution, I would say yes. All right. I have a little follow-up question. So in one case, the priest uh, who gave the invalid absolution, presumably, was a sterile Malankara right priest. Is it possible that using forgiving instead of uh, absolved is valid in that right. I, I did, uh, Ciro Malabarian, did you say? Ciro Malankara. I oh, imagine uh, the right is similar to Ciro Malabar, but... Well, I really don't know what their attitude is. You'd have to look at what the theology is of that particular right. But I'm pretty sure that it's always the same. It has to involve the confession, confession you know, um, absolution and repentance and uh, so you have to say your sins um, specifically and and since the original absolution was invalid there's no reason why the person shouldn't say the sins again I mean they'd have to be awfully strange to reject to doing that and and, uh, remember it has to be about mortal sins so presumably they don't have a huge number of mortal sins that would 
touch the absolution. So um, I really don't know, but I assume it's all the, uh, the same. Does that help, Father? Okay. That's it. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you very much. Thank sure. you. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Rather. Marcella is a first-time caller in Maryland, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Marcella, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father. How are you? Okay. So I have a question. Today in the Gospel, Jesus talks about a, the key of knowledge. And he tells the Pharisees that they had access to the key of knowledge, and somehow they hit the key of knowledge, and they don't let people access the key of knowledge. So Maybe you can comment for us. How do we interpret that key of knowledge? Is there any key that we're still to find? Well, I didn't quite hear the whole thing, but uh, you're asking me about the key of knowledge of the scribes and Pharisees in today's yes. gospel. Yes, yes, Father. Thank you. Uh, uh, yes. All right. Well, the thing is, see, Christ is talking about hypocrisy there, as you know, and so. The scribes and Pharisees sit on the chair of Moses. They studied the law. They know what it says. God has blessed them, especially the Pharisees. God has blessed them to be to be, uh, li- be able to live the law. And they don't have, you know, mostly they were wealthy. They were also intelligent. They were at the top of society. They were highly respected. And so the normal temptations that affect the rest of humanity didn't really affect them. So of all the people that were prepared by the Old Testament to recognize the coming of Christ, presumably the Pharisees and the scribes would be the best prepared. And therefore they should convert much more quickly than anybody else. And yet the the opposite was true. Because of jealousy and because of pride, they refused to convert, whereas people like the prostitutes and the people they considered sinners, they knew they were sinners, they admitted they were sinners, and they admitted they needed God. The Pharisees didn't think they needed God because they figured they could do it all on their own. So Christ basically says, okay, well, they studied the law, they know what it says, so listen to their teaching, but don't follow their example. And this is their hypocrisy is even seen in the fact that they carry on about how we should love our ancestors and appreciate what David and the Maccabees and all those people did, the prophets. But then they um, mock the prophets by not listening to what the prophets taught. In other words, they'd love to have their picture taken with them as happened to me when I was in Rome, I'd love to see these theologians that would run down and have their picture taken with the Pope to put on their wall and then come back and teach exactly the opposite of what the Pope teaches. (laughs) And uh, that's what the scribes and Pharisees were like. So that's what Christ is talking about. Thanks, Thanks, Marcella. We appreciate that phone call today. We've got a couple of open phone lines for you. If you'd like to give us a call, the number's 833 288-EWTN, that's 
3986. Um, Charles called in from Louisiana, and he wants to know, Father, if there is a single term, single word term for pastoral overreach. Um, Gee, I don't know. I'm not that I'm aware of. Uh, (laughs) All right, we gave it a shot. (laughs) Pastoral overreach is pastoral overreach. I mean, uh, you don't need to have have necessarily one term for it. As long as people know what you're talking about, two words would be suffice, I would think. All right. Very good. Back to the phones we go. John is another first-time caller in Fort Wayne, Indiana, listening on Redeemer Radio. John, you're on with Father Brian. Hey, John. Uh, hello. Good afternoon. I I was <clears throat> talking to your screener about a passage, and I think it's in Matthew, where uh, uh, it says that uh, Joseph did not have uh, relations with her, I think, until after... Jesus' birth right. or something, as I say. And, I, right. and I've always been kind of puzzling. I've always believed in the virginity of the Blessed Mother, very close to her anyway, but I just wonder why that passage is in there and what does it mean? <laughs> All right, well, the passage is in there because it's been revealed by God. <laughs> Secondly, it's meant to express the relationship of Mary and Joseph. And um, lots of people have had difficulties with this passage especially because of the difficulty in translating Greek into English, because the until there says nothing about what happens um, uh, after. It only says about uh, what happens before. And so the term in Greek actually means, and there were plenty of commentaries on this, even going back to the 50s, that um, Mary and Joseph did not have relations period. And uh, it's, it's a difficulty in interpreting the translated languages. Uh, we often have some difficulty rendering Greek or Aramaic into English in the proper sense. It's even true that terms like brother and sister, as you know, many people object that Mary and Joseph must have had other children because the brothers and sisters of Jesus are mentioned in the scriptures too. Well, anybody who knows anything about the Old Testament, you know, you, the way they interpreted brother and sister was uh, extended family. So these were Christ's cousins. They weren't his uh, brothers and sisters. We head next to the Republic of Texas. Barbara is in Texas listening on the Amazon Echo. Barbara, you're on with Father Brian. Thank you. Father, I have a very simple question. In our church bulletin, the sacraments are listed in the column in the bulletin, and included in that column is RCIA. I always thought that there were seven sacraments, not eight. But when you look at the column, RCIA is listed as a sacrament. Is it in itself a sacrament? No. RCIA is catechesis, preparation for baptism. I don't know. I'd have to see it, but uh, no, it's not a sacrament. It's probably listed there so that people who are looking for the sacraments will find it. Yes, we'd have to look at the, see what how it's how it's uh, done for you. But no, there are seven sacraments. I, I I have to admit I'm very puzzled when people ask me these kinds of questions because I 
no one has ever suggested that after Vatican II somehow we change all of our doctrines. There are seven sacraments, period. I don't care what it says in the bulletin. <laughs> and that hasn't changed. So why would anybody think it changed? I mean, because there's a reference to some stupid bulletin to it. Like it looked representing as though it looked like it was changed. I mean, gosh, <laughs> it's a typographical. It could be a typographical error. Who knows? Maybe the person who typed the bulletin wasn't a person who was terribly acute about things. I don't know. <laughs> but no, there are only seven sacraments, and RCI is the place where you go for sacramental preparation if you're an adult. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Barbara. We appreciate that question Thank today. Thank you. We got a phone call from Oklahoma, and they want to know if marijuana for medical use is okay. Yes. <laughs> but if, if a doctor prescribes it, that's not the same. Look, is morphine for medical use okay? Yes. If you're, you know, you had an operation and they give you morphine for the pain. Otherwise, it's not. It's the same idea, all right? It's not uh, proper for use as a mind-altering drug. And it has to be done with great care because, um, you know, I, w I had my appendix out when I was 16. They gave me morphine. And uh, I remember <laughs> when I had a second operation, um, one of our priests came to me and visited me the second day after surgery. And so he went back and, how's Father Brian doing? Oh, great. Oh, he's just <laughs> wonderful. He's so happy and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, that was before the morphine wore off. <laughs> and, of course, drugs that are used for medicinal purposes by doctors, opium was such a drug. You know, I mean, if you've ever watched Brother Cadfile, this medieval physician, this monk, he presides what he calls poppy juice which was the medieval opium, but only for the sake of pain when you're having surgery or something like that, or if you're dying. It's not normal for use when it comes to be a mind-altering drug, which is how everybody uses it. I mean, I can assure you most of the people that sell it here in Portland, and it's legal here, and there are five you know, store, marijuana stores in a five-block area of this parish, 90% of the people that go there don't go there for medicine. So, uh, yes, of course it's okay. Uh, for those of you uh, who are big fans of Catholic Answers Live, it's been one of the gold standards of Catholic radio for many, many years. And if you can't get through your weekend without your Catholic Answers Live fix, we've got you covered. The best of Catholic Answers Live airs right here on EWTN Radio on Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time uh, this week. Uh, Abraham, father of faith and works with our good friend Steve Ray in hour number one. And in hour number two, one disciple at a time with Everett Fritz. That's Catholic Answers Live, the best of this Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. Kent writes in, what is the Trinity and how does that not make God the one God rather than three? Uh, well, that was the first big question the church had to answer for 300 years is basically the reason the Council of Nicaea was called in the end. The Trinity is revealed to us in Scripture. You can't prove it. Any attempts to prove it are, I'm sorry, insane because it's a matter of revelation and it's a miracle. 
We don't understand it. We believe it. We understand things about the Trinity so that we can deny errors, but we can't prove the Trinity. So the Trinity means that the one God in essence, in existence, has within the one Godhead a distinction of persons which is real but is not a matter of a distinction of essences or existences. The uh, only distinction within the Trinity is the origin of the persons. So the Father is infinite, eternal, all-powerful, creator, all-knowing, etc., without origin. That's why he's called Father. The Word or the Son is all-powerful, all-knowing, equal to the Father, but he receives this as a person from the Father. That's why we call him the Son. And then the Holy Spirit is all-knowing, all-eternal, uh, all, all, all those attributes, but he receives them from the Holy Spirit, from the Son and the Father equally together, not two separate things. That would make a quadernity. So that relationship of origin um, is what uh, distinguishes the Holy Spirit from the Son, from the Father. Remember, they're all equally knowledge, they're all equally love, they're all equally eternal, but they have it as a distinction of persons. So as a result, there's no distinction in God except by way of origin, not by dignity. Many people thought, well, if the Son is distinct from the Father, he can't be eternal with the Father, and therefore he must be a subordinate. The, the heresy is called subordinationism to the Father. In other words, lesser in being. No, that's what Arius thought. That's the famous Arian heresy. He's the same consubstantial with the Father, the same in being. Next stop is Key Largo in Florida. Gene is listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Gene, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father Brian. I have a, a question um, and from many of my uh, friends and family members. I am originally from St. Louis, but um, I'm in Key Largo now. But um, they're... We are all wondering and asking many questions about this initiative that is going on in St. Louis area, Archdiocese, and that is this All Things New initiative. I've wondered if you have any kind of insight into what this really is and if it will be spreading throughout the United States. Uh, no, I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't live in St. Louis. Um, is it a catechetical initiative, or uh, I don't know? I'd have to. Yeah, read can up you quick? On. I'm not familiar with it either, Gene. Can you can you give us a, a real quick uh, synopsis of, of right. what, what's going on? Okay, I can try because <laughs> mm -hmm. we don't quite understand it ourselves. But it was an initiative. It's gone through uh, several cities, large cities, and I know one of them is. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Just tell us what it's about. Yeah, I can, I can, I can okay. help you now, now, Father. When she can, you know, talks about Pittsburgh. So apparently, it's it's kind of a name that they've given to a program to try. I think, in some regard, to ease the pain of massive church closings and parish consolidations. Oh, oh, okay. 
you know, because I think they're down, if I'm not mistaken, they may be down to 50 parishes in Pittsburgh now. Yeah, that's right. They have a huge church closing there. Well, the only thing I would say about, is about that is that I sympathize with all the people. As you know, the church closing are caused by a lack of clergy. Uh, the, the priests are getting fewer and fewer. And they can't import enough from Africa or India or whatever to make up the difference. Uh, as some of them in the West Coast, I find this um, somewhat difficult to understand because, you know, in the West Coast, we have one church for 7,000 families. The next church is within 20 miles, and it's another 7,000 families. However, when I lived in Connecticut, and I think Pittsburgh is the same, and probably St. Louis, because they're very old Catholic towns with lots of different ethnic populations, they, all they was talk about how terrible it was that they were closing all these parishes. And I said, yeah, but on one green in a tiny town in New England, they have a French church, an Italian church, uh, of Anglo church, and they have five parishes that used to be serviced by five different priests, all of whom now have maybe 100 people coming every Sunday. Now, I realize it's painful for people who grew up with those parishes and those churches, but they're not, most of the church closings are an attempt to, to recognize that they need to have uh, more clergy if they're going to staff them, number one. And number two, to try to unify resources. Now, some, I know of one diocese where they've closed 100 parishes and they're closing another 100, they don't give the people any, any chance to even discuss it, really. And that's not right. I mean, the people who've frequented those parishes at least should have a town hall meeting, even if they don't agree with them the decision made, have it explained to them, and then in one particular diocese, they promised one church who actually went to Rome to try to keep their church open and claimed that they had a, you know, a sufficient congregation, which they probably did, but even then, when they unified them, they told them that they could choose the name of the new parish, and then they just bypassed them and changed it to something else. And uh, that's not right either. I mean, if you, I understand that the fact that many parishes have to close, but the people should be consulted about that, and it should be discussed with them, and not just imposed from an office again. Any any time we start to become like a thoroughly nasty bureaucracy, <laughs> that's something we need to criticize. Because there's a lot more involved in that than post office closings and stuff. Those people receive their sacraments there. Their parents may have been married or buried there. Their families. We need to take that in consideration and give it a human face. And uh, so that, that's all I can say about that. I don't know if it helps or not. Yeah, Father, you didn't arrive on this planet last week. And you've seen a lot in your time not only on earth, but you've seen a lot in your time as a priest. Have you given much thought to the crisis we find ourselves in in America with the uh, dwindling number of people answering the call to the priesthood? Uh, I have, actually. And 
the unfortunate thing is that in the 80s it was all caused by sexual difficulties of people who were systematically excluded because they wanted homosexuals. Uh, that fortunately has mostly passed from us now, but we're suffering from it with respect to how many clergy we have. The second thing is that we're dealing with a whole bunch of uncatechized adults, so how, how are we going to find vocations in that? The third thing is, I tell people, you know, when I entered in 66, the seminaries and convents were full, but then, of course, people were having eight and ten children at that time. Whereas now you might have one. So as is the case in Europe, we're populating ourselves out of existence. Um, and they need to have more children and educate them better. In fact, I've known either mother superiors in convents or, or bishops who have people who complained about the fact that there aren't any sisters in schools and there aren't any priests in parishes. Well, when was the last time you sent one of your children to us? <laughs> and the answer is not encouraging, let's put it that way. Uh, and lastly, I would say that unfortunately in the last 10 years, we've experienced a kind of step back for various reasons of the 1970s. And, and that wasn't a good time for seminaries and convents then, and it isn't now. So it was really beginning to come back again under Pope Benedict especially, with John, the, Pope John Paul II preparing for it, we really need to examine ourselves as a church as to what we're promoting that is keeping people from becoming members of the clergy. Father, thank you as always for being so gracious with your time. Would you leave us with a blessing? May all blessing, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this Thursday edition of EWTN's Open Line. We'll be talking theology tomorrow on EWTN's Open Line Friday. Our very own vice president of theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, will be in the house. Until we get together tomorrow with Colin... Have a great evening and God bless.